Hello there and welcome. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, a community long known as the gateway to New England. And you know what? It is time to start the 23rd of May 2023 episode of the Greenwich A Town for All Season Show podcast. Isn't that great? Well, I think it is. <laughs> anyway, the town of Greenwich, Connecticut was founded on July 18, 1640. And since its humble beginnings, Greenwich, Connecticut has emerged to be one of America's most notable and attractive communities. It's a special place that we actually call home, and I hope that you do too. Now, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years, as ours do, whether you're here to stay, you're just brand new to the community, or you're just passing through, well, we welcome you with open arms. And you know what that means? This really shocks a lot of people when, when I tell them this, but you know what? It means that you are now part of our history. And for that, you get my congratulations. <laughs> I'm really glad that you had joined us for today's show. Now, the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast was made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Zoom Institute, the Ambassador Museum of the United States of America, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, Eastern Neurological Services of New York and listeners like you everywhere. You know, I'll tell you, we've got a very, very long history, a very varied history, and and quite frankly, a very entertaining one in its own way. Um, and that all adds up to a great show. And believe me, I think that we've got that for you. So without any further delay, why don't we get started? Coming up on today's show. Well, it's the 23rd of May, 2023. Welcome on Greenwich in the Gilded Age, that time when the word Greenwich became synonymous with the word millionaire. We'll visit Round Island on the coast, made possible by the Junior League of Greenwich through its book, The Greatest States, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930. On Greenwich Life as it is and was, columnist Ed Irwin Edwards shares the story of a marine gasoline engine a century ago in Koskab and the birth of an age in marine transportation. On the judge's corner, Judge Frederick A. Hubbard, also known by his pseudonym Ezekiel Lemondale, shares some yachting history in Greenwich. Well, my friends, Memorial Day is just around the corner. It has been observed in Greenwich, Connecticut for generations. We'll explore how, focusing on various years in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. As we continue to mark the 125th anniversary of the establishment of the Greenwich Police Department, I'll share news of burglaries, arrests, and crimes committed and recorded from throughout Greenwich's history on crimes and misdemeanors. But there's more. You'll hear about Nero the Lion, who broke loose at Washburn Circus in downtown Greenwich in 1908. Oh my, a street fair a century ago benefiting the Greenwich Hospital, the Emily Bruce Shelter, and the East Portchester Nursery. How Judge Hubbard and Greenwich-based undertaker Fred D. Knapp became movie matinee idols this week a century ago, that would be in 1923, thanks to the Baldhead Club of America and their appearance on the silver screens across the nation 
1923, and we'll have more tidbits of Greenwich, Connecticut's history as well. As always, there's lots to see, lots to do, and lots to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. You've come to the right place to learn about that history of one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. We'll have all this and a whole lot more as our history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Make Site Design Associates of Greenwich, Connecticut your choice when it comes to taking your beautiful landscaped property to the next level. An award-winning landscape architecture studio since 1979, Site Design Associates places a high value on a unique multidisciplinary approach to landscape design and development that is second to none. From analysis to construction to maintenance with 35 years of experience, Site Design Associates offers services that are collaborative and visionary with each client's unique style in mind. Offices are located at 777 West Putnam Avenue in Greenwich, Connecticut. Call 203-869-6895 or go online to learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright environmental future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. A special initiative by Site Design Associates, LISI is a community of diverse professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned citizens, harnessing the powers of imagination and innovation to achieve the ecological balance and conservation of Long Island Sound for present and future generations. It aims to use modern planning and the implementation of new technologies to conserve Long Island Sound, looking forward to a bright future of effective leadership. To learn more about the Long Island Sound Institute, go online to lisistudy.info or call 203-869-8632. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is a tribute to those Americans who served the nation on the international scene as ambassadors in the American diplomatic corps. There has never been a museum specifically dedicated to ambassadors. The museum's founders and supporters are committed to achieving its educational mission with programs and events for high school and college students. My friends, you can learn more by contacting the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, by calling 203-869-8632, right to Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831, or go online at amusa.info. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor his Greenwich office at 
My friends, don't gamble with your health. Eastern Neurological Services offers comprehensive neurologic diagnoses and therapeutic services. Its principal, Dr. Xiaoke Gao, MD, is a top New York neurologist who practices in dynamic treatment of neurological diseases, neurorehabilitation, and physical therapy. With convenient locations in New York City and a multilingual staff, Eastern Neurologic Services offers a wide array of treatments for neurological disorders. You'd be glad to know that Eastern Neurological Services provides general neurological consultations, on-site diagnostic testing, and physical and neurocognitive therapy. Visit easternneurologic.com, that's easternneurologic.com, or call 212-889-6540 or 212-227-6500. It's a fact of life that our health is important. Contact Eastern Neurologic today. You'll be glad you did. Well, my friends, it's that time to go back in Greenwich, Connecticut's storied history to the Gilded Age, when wealthy Americans constructed splendid mansions, outbuildings, and landscapes, a time that the late town historian William E. Finch Jr. referred to as, quote, the flowering of Greenwich, unquote, an age when the word Greenwich first became synonymous with the word millionaire. Now, thanks to the Junior League of Greenwich, the greatest state Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880 to 1930 book was published. It is richly illustrated, revealing a wealth of detailed history about the emergence of the greatest state during the Gilded Age. It's a book that I strongly recommend. On today's show, our attention is going to be focused on Round Island, one of the coastal greatest states, in Greenwich, its principal owner was John D. Chapman. The original architect in 1908 was Henry C. Pelton. The architect for renovations in 1924 to 1934 was E. Spencer Guidall. At the end of the 19th century, Oliver D. Mead owned Round Island, a wooded island at high tide when the sandy beach linking it with the mainland was awash. It was part of the Mead family farm, and since the early 1800s, a small stone warehouse and dock at Bush's Harbor on the eastern side of the island had been used for shipping farm produce before better roads made travel to market easier. Oliver D. Mead, who lived from 1842 to 1939, had inherited the family farm and its 120 acres from his older second cousin, Oliver Mead, who lived from 1800 to 1887. He was known for his generosity in sharing his waterfront with the people of Greenwich, and Round Island was a favorite picnic and swimming spot. Hoping to preserve this public usage, in 1895 the town agreed to buy the island, plus another six acres on the mainland, from Mead for a town park for $75,000. This was not to be, however. In the previous decade, much of Belhaven, the Nelson Mead farm and that of Augustus Mead, had already been sold for real estate development, and the new, uh, new summer residents did not like the idea of public park so near to their exclusive homes. What would surely have been one of the most popular beach areas on the Sound instead became a private enclave adjacent to Field Point Park. 
John Duvall Chapman, who lived from 1874 to 1934, was married to the former Adelaide Fultz, who lived from 1883 to 1945, the daughter of a Newcastle, Pennsylvania banker. The Chapmans must have become acquainted with the Round Island property when they summered in Belhaven, and in 1908 Chapman purchased a bit over 10 acres from the Field Point Land Company, organized by Oliver D. Mead. The Greenwich Papers described Chapman, then 34, as a quote-unquote wealthy New Yorker. The son of a Brooklyn doctor, he had attended Williams College, as did both of his sons in later years, and entered the brokerage business soon after graduating. The year before the purchase of Round Island, Chapman became a special partner in the house of Chisholm and Chapman and a member of the New York Stock Exchange. The house was designed by Henry C. Pelton, architect of New York City's Riverside Church, but no record remains of how it looked. In 1924, ten years of remodeling was begun that greatly altered the house, creating a fantasy of English country life by the sea. Acting as architect for the project was Edward Spencer Guidall, an Englishman who worked for some years in Greenwich. Very little is known of the details of Guidall's life, but he greatly influenced Greenwich taste and style. As early as 1908, he was associated with the office of John Russell Pope as an interior designer. It is probable that he became familiar with the town when Pope's firm was designing Merley Farm and the Henkin House on North Street. A disagreement with Pope in 1916 caused him to leave the firm and to work on his own. Whether the Chapmans first brought him to work in Greenwich is not known, but he quickly became popular with a circle of wealthy patrons who sought his advice and commissioned him to give an authentic English style to their American homes. He became known for his masterful use of paving stones, brickwork, and carved wood, which he employed in designing and renovating Connecticut residences that could pass an English manor house, or English as English manor houses. Although he was not a licensed architect, his field experience had taught him to function as one, especially when working with experienced builders. At Round Island, Guidall was teamed with Pat Patrizzi, a local builder born near Naples, Italy, who had assembled a crew of craftsmen able to carry out demanding design work. Patrizzi remembered that it was sometimes difficult to work with the capricious designer. Quote, he would never discuss money, and he wouldn't use plans, unquote, said Patrizzi. Quote, he would imagine how he wanted a detail to look, and we would do it from his description or maybe a simple sketch. The team transformed the residence into a manor house of the style of the light Gothic period using limestone and brick and exposed timbers. Tall clustered chimneys rising from a terracotta roof gave the structure a romantic silhouette, as did the gothic windowed porch on the garden end of the second floor. To produce the effect of artful rusticity, Guidall sent his workmen on scavenging trips throughout Rhode Island and Connecticut to buy and disassemble old barns and buildings for their aged beams and weathered wood. Brass and iron hardware designed by the architect was manufactured in New York, especially for the project. The redesigned facade featured an arched entry, 
which opened into the stately entrance hall. From here, one reached the music room, with a built-in organ and garden views. Also entered from the hall was the formal living room, with its gothic detailing and mullioned windows. A large stone fireplace, with oversized andirons, warmed the space, and glass doors decoratively barred with wrought iron grills, opened to a flagstone terrace and the sloping garden below. Up a few steps from this room was the dining room, the most fanciful room in the house. At the far end of the stone-floored salon, a grand fireplace rose almost to the ceiling. Grouped by stone pilasters with carved capitals had a Byzantine appearance, and the face of the fireplace was decorated with designs carved in relief in the brick. Overhead, Gaidal installed old oaken beams in the ceiling, and Patrice's artisans enhanced them with delicate Persian painting. Gilded statuary niches were placed here and there in the walls, and a heavy iron chandelier was lighted by candles. A stone dining terrace was built just outside, so that alfresco diners would not be overpowered by the spacious grounds. The space was designed as an outdoor room with a fragmentary wall separating this terrace from the one by the living room. Although each main floor room boasted a view of the water, it was not the dominant feature of any of them. Rather, it was always focused and seen through window mullions and frames of greenery. From each room, one could also see exterior stone window details or brick buttresses, so that even in gazing out, the viewer was always mindful of being surrounded by the beautifully detailed walls of the house. Most of the second-floor bedrooms had private tiled bathrooms. In the Gaidal-designed renovations, they were given different personalities. Each was English or Italian or French, with appropriate interior finishes. A breakfast room on this level was linked to the kitchen by a dumbwaiter, so that the family could breakfast quietly, while enjoying the view without descending into the more public area of the house. Privacy was also a consideration in the design of the crenellated tower, which protruded from the master bedroom's balcony. In it, a stairway wound down to a small door, which opened onto the lawn, permitting swimmers to go from the bedrooms to the beach without having to appear on the main floor of the house in their swimming attire. Since the 1930s, several owners have altered the interior of the round, round, round Island House. Redecorations have changed the flavor of the interior and have tamed it somewhat. Most representative of this trend is the dining room, which now appears more 18th century than 16th. The stone floor was covered with the ceiling beams, were hidden behind conventional plaster. The massive stone fireplace was replaced by a smaller one suited to the now wallpapered room, and the, a, a more recent doorway opens directly to the entrance hall. In the former music room, the organ, like so many placed in turn-of-the-century houses, was removed, and the space is now a cozy library. Though the main house has undergone many changes since the 1930s, the principal outbuilding, the lodge, looks much as it did upon completion. This fanciful building sits down the slope from the main house, on the edge of the inner harbor, 
It was entirely the creation of E. Spencer Guidall. So charming is this building that one overlooks its intended purpose of housing a five-car garage. The cobbled automobile court was laid with stones discarded from New York City streets during repaving. The lodge's garage story is stone, but with an upper story of exposed timbers infilled with wattle and daub. Access to the second-floor living quarters is via a stone stairway and through a charming cone-topped tower which mimics a Kentish outhouse. From here, a narrow passage leads into the large open living and dining area. Although additions have been made to the building, the original portion of the structure is essentially unaltered. It has been rejuvenated as a separate year-round residence. From the water, Round Island is a marked contrast to the other grand houses of the area. While the homes of Field Point Park sit amid large swaths of open lawn rolling down to the beach, Round Island's Mian is more secretive, with only hints of the house's charms visible through the trees and only a few structures clearly seen at the water's edge. Sailors and ferryboat riders have become familiar with them. The original 1827 Quayside building, where farm goods were once shipped, serves as a dockhouse with steps leading down the rock ledge to a small wharf. A few yards away from the cliff is a stone and brick structure built as a pavilion in the Guidal renovations and later enclosed for a guest house. But down the stone walk is Round Island's most distinctive small building, the Beach Pavilion. With buttressed walls and an irregular roof line, this structure appears to be a remnant of a medieval monastery. But stone decorations on the outer walls give the birth dates of the two Chapman sons, John and Richard, and dispel the illusion. Used brick and Belgian blocks were incorporated into this design in the 1920s, along with decorative touches of stone and statuary gathered from the New England countryside and from abroad. A sundial, protectively placed in the inside walls, bears the date 1734 and adds to the feeling of antiquity, but no record of the timepieces or origin remains. The stone walls pierced with wide arches offer transition from the protected walls of the medieval-inspired house to the modern Connecticut waterfront, and it has been the romantic setting for at least one family wedding. Between Beach and Manor lie the gardens, which have always been an important part of Round Island's beauty. Guidall defined the area with low masonry walls interspersed with tall pillars to create a grand allee leading to the beach pavilion. Here and there are arches and tableaus of statuary and brick, including pineapples carved from stone by Patrizzi's expert craftsmen. The Chapmans maintained the garden in formal English style, with many flower borders and boxwood hedges. Topiary peacocks lent an amusing note, and vegetable plots were carefully screened by evergreen walls. The landscaping was maintained by a complicated underwater irrigation system fed by a natural spring well. Although the Chapmans eventually owned other vacation residences, they continued to refer to Round Island as home. John Chapman died in 1934, but his widow maintained the estate until her death in 1945.
The Great Estates, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930 book by the Junior League of Greenwich is available for borrowing purposes through the Greenwich Library System. You can go to your favorite or your nearest branch of the Greenwich Library. Now, if you would like to acquire a copy, my recommendation would be to visit the Greenwich Historical Society's Museum Store at GreenwichHistory.org, or you can call 203-869-6899, or you could also contact your favorite book vendor. best-kept secret in historic Greenwich, Connecticut, is a marvelous destination with an even more extraordinary mission. Voted best coffee shop in Greenwich by the readers of Greenwich Magazine and honored with the Community Impact Leader Award by the Connecticut Restaurant Association in 2022, Coffee for Good invites you to be a part of a magical story of a restored historic treasure, a destination that inclusively brings people together. Thanks to a unique nonprofit partnership between Abelis and the Second Congregational Church. You'll be instantly drawn to the warmth and the historical ambiance when you enter the 1858 Italianate-styled Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church. Serving coffee, teas, an assortment of delectable goodies and more, Coffee for Good employs and trains people with special needs. Through a self-sustaining inclusive platform, trainees acquire the skills and confidence they need to thrive in the community. Open daily Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. except Sundays, Coffee for Good offers you free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating year-round in a relaxed setting with a vibe all its own. A popular destination for informal business meetings, gatherings, and a fantastic study spot, too. Take it from me, my friends. The word about Coffee for Good has gotten around. After all, its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to excellence and inclusion. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill National Historic District on the National Register of Historic Places. Open daily, 8 a.m. through 6 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more by going to coffeeforgood.org. On March 8th, the Greenwich Historical Society welcomed visitors to its current exhibition, Sports More Than Just a Game, presenting an inclusive and insightful history of athletics, sports culture, and celebrated athletes in Greenwich and surrounding communities. The exhibition, supported in part by grants from Connecticut Humanities and First Republic Bank, tells a fuller history of local athletes, teams, and competitions with artifacts and memorabilia in view from, or on view rather, from museum and private collections. Now, I have some good news for you. The Art of Croquet Lecture and Demonstration with Lee Kennedy um, of the Greenwich Croquet Club will be on Thursday, May 18th, 5 to 6.30 p.m. That sounds like a fun thing to go to. The next event um, uh, with the programs of sports more than just a game um, is Discover Greenwich Scavenger Hunt, and that would be the sports edition. Put that on your calendars for Sunday, June 18th, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And uh, let's see, after that, movie night on the Great Lawn. That sounds like a lot of fun. A League of Their Own. That's going to be on Thursday, July 27, from 6 to 9 p.m. And that's on the campus of the Greenwich Historical Society at 47 
Strickland Road in Kaskab. You are listening to the Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Memorial Day weekend is coming up, and I thought that I would go back through our history and report to you on some of the ways that the people of Greenwich, Connecticut observed Memorial Day. Um, we have one, for example, that I want to, uh, to share with you from the year 1879. And let me see if we can find that here. Okay. Um, that was, this was when uh, Memorial Day was known as Decoration Day. And uh, this comes from the Greenwich Observer, June 5th, 1879. And it goes as follows. Decoration Day was observed here, but in a very meager manner. About 20 veterans met and, without music or ceremony, proceeded to decorate the graves of their fallen comrades. It is to be hoped that another year our citizens will extend such aid to the veterans as will enable them to give a more fitting observance of the day. At New Canaan, the exercises were of an elaborate nature, the decoration of the graves being done during the day and largely attended, public speaking being held in the evening, Colonel Hoyt and R.J. Walsh, Esquire, being the orators. And again, that comes from the year 1879. Now, um, going up to Banksville, uh, that would be in the northeastern section of the town of uh, Greenwich, I have this for you. The here are but three Civil War veterans in Banksville, and all of them are feeble old men. Uh, by the way, this comes from the year 1908. I forgot to mention that. Memorial Day services under charge of the veterans and the graves in the various cemeteries were decorated. The following is a report of David C. Banks, a man over 85 years old who had charge of the ceremonies to Lombard Post JAR. And JAR, if you ever see that, stands for Grand Army of the Republic. And his letter goes as follows. Dear comrades, I've compiled or complied with the detail in the decoration of the graves of the soldiers and in the distributing of flags and flowers on their graves, having exercises on that occasion by the schools, churches, and the public in general, the schools of Banksville and Middle Pentant, having been specially drilled for the purpose by their teachers, Mrs. Selleck and Miss Newman and made a very excellent showing. We were also aided by a number of excellent speakers, among them Reverend W. Kaiser, Dr. R.B. Griswold, Comrades Martin and Comrade Allen, also music and singing. The general public was much interested in the work, there being about 200 in the gathering in the cemetery. After the exercises adjourned to the ground, 
of the Methodist Church in Middle Petent and partake, partook rather in ice cream, cake, and lemonade, then returning to their homes. Respectfully submitted, David C. Banks. What else do I have here? Well, we have this from 1923. That would be a century ago. And uh, let's see, we have two parts of this. Um, this is on the front page as well as page three of the Greenwich News and Graphic. Again, dated Friday, June 1st, 1923. The story goes as follows. Memorial Day in Greenwich, patriotic address by Dr. Thompson, parade and decoration ceremonies. The Hevemeyer Auditorium, that would be the Hevemeyer Building, um, which today, of course, is at Greenwich Avenue and Art Street, was crowded at the annual Memorial Day exercises on Wednesday afternoon at 2 o'clock. The program, which had been arranged by Lombard Camp Sons of Veterans, of which J. Harvey Finch was chairman, was one of the most interesting and impressive ever held here, there being several new innovations introduced this year, which added greatly to the annual observance. Mr. Finch presided, and with him seated on the platform were Reverend Dr. M. George Thompson, the orator of the day, Reverend Pliny Cooney, curate of St. Mary's Roman Catholic Church, and Reverend Raymond Sanford, the new minister of the North Greenwich Congregational Church. Members of the Battery F 192nd Artillery marched into the auditorium and took the seats reserved for them near the front. Several members of the Sons of Veterans were also present. As the band, led by Norman Hunt, struck up marching through Georgia, the members of Lombard Post JR, again the Greenwich Army of the Republic, marched from the rear of the auditorium up to the middle aisle to the two front rows of the seats on the right. And then the story goes on on page three, and it states as followings. As the old vets appeared, the audience rose to their feet and burst into applause. Prayer was then offered by the Reverend Pliny Cooney, after which a quartet composed of Herbert C. Tilley Jr., W. S. M. Fisk, George E. Brush, and Andrew Mitchell sang, quote, Boys of the Old Brigade, unquote, General Logan's order was given by Kenneth Walker, followed by Mr. Tilly, who sang, There is no death by O'Hara. Then came the flag drill by the children of the 7th and 8th grades under the direction of their teacher, Miss Marie Fox. The children wore white dresses with red, white, and blue crepe paper sashes and caps of red, white, and blue crepe paper. Each carried a small American flag. They went through a number of difficult figures and formations, which was frequently applauded by the audience, and the drill was interspersed with songs and recitations by the children. During the drill, Ordnance Sergeant Fred Lancaster of the State Armory appeared from one of the wings with the Grand Army of the Republic American flag, and the children stood at attention while they gave the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. There was not a single hitch during the entire drill, which reflected much credit upon Miss Fox, who had spent many hours in training the little folks. The quartet again sang, Tenting Tonight on the Old Camp Ground, followed by Lincoln's Gettysburg speech, delivered by Helen Kapal. Mr. Finch then read the role of Lombard Post Number 24, Grand Army of the Republic, after which he introduced Reverend Dr. M. George Thompson, Speaker of the Day. 
Dr. Thompson said that on Memorial Day a year ago, he had the privilege of attending the services for the honored dead at St. Mark's and then went over to the Monument of Lincoln and subsequently to the cross erected in memory of, quote-unquote, our boys, who made the supreme sacrifice, before which those passing would raise their hats out of respect to the dead. Men and women need to be reminded of these things, he said, as human nature so soon forgets. Quote, I like to call the day Memorial Day, he said, quote, and you men who are alive like to think of these past memories. Patriotism is found on two things, pride in the past and ambition for the future. Our fine republic was not given to us overnight. These things do not fall down from heaven to us, for we have to fight and strive for them. As we think of the past today, why can't we live in the present? It's the men who see that do things, a vision of the past, should be centralized in the future. We want to get further away from self. Every man must not only die, but live for his country. Why, with all the brains there is in America, can't some, some of these present problems be solved? There is no flag so good as the stars and stripes for me. Some of the papers are dangerous. They would undermine the authority of the courts. American ideals and American homes must not be trilled tri or trifled with. You and I must not see a country handed down to us without a government. That is what is being asked of us. We do not want to be like Russia. You and I must stand for the things of today and for the consecration of liberty. Let us not only say, as we kneel before the graves of departed comrades, that we are a people of a generation who revere the history of the past because we are proud of the past, but say to the world that America must have a government for the people and by the people, which shall not perish from the earth. Unquote. The exercises came to a close with the singing of the Star-Spangled Banner by the audience led by the band and quartet and the pronouncing of the benediction by Reverend Cooney. Following the exercises, the parade took place, the column forming west on Havemeyer Place, corner of Greenwich Avenue. It was led by Major F.G.C. Smith, Grand Marshal, followed by Police Chief James J. Nedley, Captain Patrick Flanagan, Sergeants James Fahey, James H. Fitzroy, and Jack Scully, and a platoon of patrolmen. The famous Scottish Kilty Band of Stamford headed Battery E, 192nd Artillery. Others in the line were the children who participated in the flag drill, accompanied by Miss Fox and Miss Bertha M. Bowles, Hunt Band, the Boy Scouts with Scoutmaster Franklin G. Chapin, and veterans in automobiles. The line of march was up Greenwich Avenue to Putnam Avenue, east to the Second Congregational Church, where a halt was made for the sounding of taps. The line then proceeded to Christ Church, and after taps were sounded there, the line countermarched over East Putnam Avenue and down Millbank Avenue to the Union Cemetery, taps being sounded and then south over Millbank Avenue to Railroad Avenue, north on Greenwich Avenue to disband at the Town Hall. And what else do I have here? I think I have one more. Oh, yes, I do, as a matter of fact. This also comes 
from 1923, June 1st, and this appeared in the Greenwich News and Graphic. The headline on this is Letter Soldiers Letters Home. And I would like to follow or share this with you. And let's see, be patient. Here we go. All right. Elias S. Peck to his father, written 60 years ago. As particularly timely for this Memorial Day week, the following wartime written by the late Elias S. Peck of Greenwich to his father is loaned by the writer's son, Walter S. Peck, to the news and graphic for printing. The letter is dated St. Augustine, Florida, November 9, 1863. Dear Father, a mail came in yesterday and I got four letters and a newspaper. One from Lib, that's spelled L-I-B, dated... October 17, one from you, Kel, Mead, and Ma, dated October 25th, one from Lib, and you, dated October 30th, and one from William Sherwood. I wrote in my last letter about this place. It was to Lib, I'm assuming that would be to, uh, uh, that's a name, of course, dated November 5th. They will not uh, let us wear any colored shirt in the army, it don't make any difference what. I suppose that letters will all come in bunches now, as the mail does not come from Hilton Head here very often. Joshua Lyon had an express box come yesterday. It started October 24th. I was on picket yesterday, so I could not go to church downtown. The largest church here is a Catholic church. The pickets here are close, by the city along the creek. We only stay out 24 hours at a time. There are five companies of rebel guerrillas not a great way from here. There are lots of cows in the woods across the creek. Three or more companies of the 24th Massachusetts Regiment have gone out after rebel cattle and are to be gone four days. The cattle around here live mostly on salt grass. There are some fine-looking cows here. There is lots of wild turkeys, deer, and bears in the woods near here. An old lady told an old lady here told me that she had seen three wars here and that this place was seized three times. An Indian that was shut up in the fort here cut his way out through the thick shell stone with a table knife and fork and escaped. They showed me her garden and trees that had fruit on them that tasted a good deal like muskmelon and nearly as large, called pulpus. Oranges are very plenty here. Trees that are not grafted have large sour oranges on. We use them instead of lemons to make drinks. They make a better drink than lemons. They think just as much of an apple tree here as we do north of an orange tree and have just as much trouble to raise it. It was very warm yesterday, and a little, and the little gnats almost ate us up until sundown, when the wind began to blow very cold, and it is pretty cold today. It is a great place for fishing here. The citizens are not allowed to go out fishing nights without a guard with them for fear they might have communications with the rebels. One of our company went with them last night, and one... The, the night before. They got a good string of fish. The picket post that I was on yesterday had two stakes stuck up. We let the citizens that belong inside of our the litters fish 
to one stake, and those that belong outside our lines fish to the other stake, but we would not let them talk together. I am well and am getting fat and heavy. My boots fit me first rate now. There are plenty loose enough. I keep them for a kind of a dress-up boot. Right soon. Elias S. Peck, Company G, 10th Regiment, Connecticut Volunteers. The following letter from Mr. Peck was written to his brother from Morris Island, dated September 24, 1863. Dear Brother, I received a letter from Ma, 22nd, and wrote one the same day. I have not got any from you in some time. Why don't you write oftener? You have more time than I do, and you have not got to sit down in the sand and take your portfolio on your knee to write, either as I do. Morris Island is nothing but a heap of fine white sand. Some of the sand hills are nearly a hundred feet high. The rebels had batteries built on top and heavy guns mounted on top, and now we are fixing them over and making them stronger. From the lower end of the island up to where the rebels' shells come to is completely covered with tents. There is a large graveyard with the graves as thick as they can be put, just above the old lighthouse, made since we came on the island. There used to be three or four funerals every day before Fort Wayne's was taken, of men killed up in the, be in the trenches. The men killed in the charge on Wagner the first night we came on this island were buried in trenches somewhere else. I heard that there were seven men of the 7th Company, or 7th Connecticut wounded, while on fatigue up to Fort Gregg by one rebel shell yesterday. The rebels fired very fast all day yesterday and last night. This morning our regiment and, I suppose, all the west, or the rest of the regiments were turned out at three o'clock and had to stand in line until daylight. Today there is to be a grand review. It is very cool today and has been for a week past. A fire feels very good. One of our bandmen has got his machine here, for taking daguerreotypes, and there are <coughs> excuse me, more places where they take them on the island. I don't know, but I shall have mine taken and sent home in a letter. How is Frank getting along nowadays? Does he catch many woodchucks? You must take good care of him, for if I get home in a year from now, I will want to hunt something besides rebels, and I can have the shooting all on my side. I should change my rifle for a double-barrel shotgun and bullets for shot. I bet Frank and Snap would know me now. About a year ago now, I was home on a furlough. You were cutting up corn in the lot next to the orchard. I guess I shan't see you cut up corn this year. I am well. I suppose my box has started. The weather is so cool now that things would come first rate. I am anxious for it, for the money that I have spent for the last two months would have paid for the stuff of three boxes, and what I got would not much, or not much more than fill one. Right soon, Elias L. Peck. And that, my friends, uh, was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic on June 1st, a century ago, in 1923. <laughs> 
The Greenwich Council of the Boy Scouts of America will again assist the American Legion Post 29 with the placement of American flags on the graves of deceased veterans. You are called, or asked rather, to meet at the cross at the center of St. Mary's Cemetery at 399 North Street um, here in Greenwich, Connecticut. The American Legion will be ready to issue flags at 5 p.m., but please come when you can. This is going to be scheduled from 5 to 7 p.m. on Wednesday, May 24th. The location will be in St. Mary's as well as Putnam Cemeteries in the rain date, although rain is not expected as far as I know. The rain date will be Thursday, May 25th, 2023. This is a really, really important event, and um, you are asked to please take part in this. Class A uniform and guardian must accompany each scout, and upon arriving at the cemetery, you will be directed to a designated area where flags will be placed in a box at your respective section. After placing the flags, please return the extra flags and any ones that need to be retired back at the place where you picked them up. The Greenwich Council of the Boy Scouts of America. You can learn more about this event and lots of other things at GreenwichScouting.org. If you wish to have further information, please call 203-869-8424. With Memorial Day just around the corner, please contribute your time to those who did so much to preserve our freedoms. Thank you so much. Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard was a lawyer, writer, and gifted storyteller. His remarkable life spanned the end of the 19th century and into the first third of the 20th century here in Greenwich, Connecticut. He wrote under the pseudonym Ezekiel Lemondale. No idea where that came from. <laughs> and he did that when he was writing about what was called or what he called rather Cracker Barrel stuff. He did that through his column, The Judge's Corner. Years ago, Frank Nicholson collected Judge Hubbard's published columns, organized them in compendium form as a terrific book that I recommend to you called Greenwich History, The Judge's Corner, 150 Vintage Newspaper Columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson. Well, you know, all this exceptionally warm weather that we are enjoying at the present time has me thinking about the water, about Long Island Sound and yachting and boating and all that wonderful stuff that goes with the um, warm season territory. <coughs> Excuse me. And so I would like to share with you this piece by our good friend, Judge Frederick A. Hubbard. Um, this was dated December 19, 1929, which obviously is not during the uh, the summer. But the title of it um, is Some Greenwich Yachting History, the America's Club Boys and Tweeds Island. And the story from Judge Hubbard goes as follows. Two letters in the basket this week call attention to misstatements of the local papers concerning the new Greenwich Yacht Club Incorporated, which is the second club of that name located in this town, a fact which possibly has escaped the memory of even our elderly readers. But in 1887 and for a couple of years, it flourished and may be said to be the forerunner of the Indian Harbor Yacht Club. Its clubhouse consisted of a loft of the steamboat dockhouse. 
The first floor of this building, commonly known as the Steamboat House, was divided equally between a freight room and a bar room, the latter pre uh, predominating its, in its importance, I'll bet. On the north side of the building, an outside stairway was erected as a means of entrance to the club. On the west and over the water, a balcony covered by an awning provided a delightful lounging place for the members. Within were a piano, card tables, magazine racks, marine pictures on the walls, easy chairs, and wicker lounges. It was indeed in those days quite an institution with one Randall as Commodore and Henry H. Aston as backer and the original instigator of the club. Over the west end of the building, painted in bold black letters, were the words, quote, Greenwich Yacht Club, unquote. But there was no incorporated, quote-unquote, as it was never incorporated. Well, that makes sense. The, the Tysons and Hamiltons of Riverside, and possibly some others from that section, with Mr. Aston owned small yachts and were early interested in the club. This club was the nucleus of the Indian Harbor, for when that club was organized in 1889, the Greenwich Yacht Club went out of existence. The Indian Harbor Yacht Club had among its original members some of those who had belonged to the Greenwich Club, and it is not unreasonable to suppose that the Greenwich Club aspired to something bigger and better, and hence the organization of the club that is now so prominent and prosperous. For the purpose of organization, those interested met in the Silic House, and the first to sign the Articles of Association was Frank Bowne Jones, Richard Outwater followed, uh, following as number two. These numerals stand before their names in the present list of members. The first officers elected were Henry E. Dorimus, Commodore, and Richard Outwater, Secretary. The club operated as a voluntary association until November 1, 1901, when its members concluded to organize under a corporate charter which was duly approved by the Secretary of, the, uh, of State. December 7th, 1901. The original incorporators were Charles T. Wills, Richard Outwater, C.S. Somerville, L.R. Alberger, T.A. Mead, Charles P. Brutch, John H. Downing, William H. McCord, Alfred Peets, James McCrutchen, Joseph F. Montells, Charles W. Kirby, and M. George Thompson, who for many years has been the chaplain. Its first officers were Henry E. Dorimus, Commodore, and Richard Outwater, Secretary, and Frank B. Jones, Treasurer. To Mr. Outwater belongs the credit of much of the active service of the organization and operations of the club from its early days. For a few months, the club occupied the former home of the Greenwich Club. Then a move was made to the lower floor of the bar room and barbershop at Indian Harbor Hotel, approached by a long wooden bridge from the hotel. The proprietor of the hotel was Mr. Yard, and while our readers may not have patronized the bar, they at least... They, they at least have a clear recollection of what that bar had been noted for in the days when Mr. Yard's predecessor, James M. Morton. There were rich free lunches of roast turkey, white bait, and all the salads that could be created by the French chef. Such a drawing card that the receipts from Saturday night to Monday morning were more than $1,500. 
but the club found their quarters below too limited, and a move was made to the house on Tweed's Island that had been erroneously stated as built by E.C. Benedict. The house on Tweed's Island was built by William M. Tweed in the mid-60s, that would be the 1860s, at the time the America's Club was occupying its original clubhouse. Its front piazza afforded a view across to the island, which appeared to be without an owner. At least so Tweed concluded when he endeavored to buy it. It was called Finch's Island, but who Finch was or where he lived, no one could tell. (laughs) And so the America's club boys possibly had a hint from their own chief on April 23, 1863, formally took possession and gave the name of Boss Tweed, to the island. They had a sumptuous shore dinner that day and raised a flagpole with a liberty cap that remained there for many years. Hereon stated occasions as, and as often as once a week at the club repeated the shore dinner to which many political guests from New York City were invited and were duly impressed with the claim that they were on Tweed's Island. Possibly Tweed began to feel that he really did own it, for soon after he erected the house in question, which was used by the club members as a place of rest, and possibly a little refreshment after an arduous day of fishing from the south side of the island. While under the bar room of the Indian Harbor Hotel, the Yacht Club prospered, but the uncertainty of a permanent location and the restricted quarters was not pleasant. They wanted more room, and the house on Tweed Island appealed to them. At that time, it was the property of Nelson B. Mead and Augustus I. Mead, and how they happened to own it is a story for next week. To this house, the yacht club moved. Mr. Outwater hired the Knapp Brothers contractors to build a piazza around the house and to construct a dance pavilion south of it. Here the club had a very happy existence, except for the late summer when, if they visited the island, they must go in the rain across in an open boat. But Commodore J.T. Wills was not satisfied. He wanted the club to have a home of its own, and he placed upon the shoulders of Mr. Outwater the duty of finding a site for a clubhouse. The end of Rocky Neck Point was then just the same as it had been since 1833 when the Rocky Neck Land Company was formed and the lot where the marble house stood on the point was quote-unquote reserved and the steamboat house built. Ephraim Mead's daughters owned it. One was Mrs. Charles H. Holmes and the other was Mrs. Victor H. Russell. And they sold it to Charles T. Wills actually for the Indian Indian Harbor Yacht Club, although at the time it was not generally understood. Commodore Wills made no money out of the transaction, but acted wholly for the interest of the club, and when finally he transferred the land to the club, he took only 6% interest on the money he had advanced. The first clubhouse that was built on Rocky Neck was subsequently burned, but while it was under construction, the uh, the club occupied a room or two at the Hazel Hotel House, a short distance up the street. An examination of old reports of the Indian Harbor Yacht Club reveals a long list of men who were prominent 40 years ago, who have passed on. The club's fleet in 1911 were vessels to be proud of, such as the beautiful schooner yacht Edominion, belonging to George Lauder, Jr. Her length was 137 feet and her draft 14 feet. 
Among the steamers was the Erin of Sir Thomas Lipton, 264 feet long and a draft of 13 feet. The Oneida, the Benedict steamer, 138 feet long, looked small behind L.V. Harkness's Wakiva, which, with a length of 246 feet and a draft of 14 feet, which was dwarfed a little alongside Morton F. Plant's Islander, which was 305 feet long and a draft of 16 feet. And yet the first flagship of the club in 1889 was the little cat boat Serene, owned by Frederick S. Dorimus and Richard Outwater, only 25 feet long, with a skimming dish draft of 2 feet, which shows how, from such little things, great ones grow. Hmm. Another matter of interest is the length of time which some of the original members have given their influence, labor, and doubtless money to its support. The complete record is not at present available, but it appears that the first two incorporators, Jones and Outwater, up to 1911 had held office many times and probably since that date. But Mr. Outwater had been secretary for 19 years, and Mr. Jones had been treasurer and measurer for nine times. Hmm, that's a lot. The position the secretary has held has given him a great fund of information of local yachting affairs. And that, my friends, was by Judge Frederick A. Hubbard um, in his uh, column, uh, and that dates from 1929. You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. All right, let me ask you a question. How many of you heard of the Bald Head Club of America? Well, I didn't until very recently, uh, but um, there was such an entity, club, whatever it is, um, a century ago. And this story relates to two gentlemen. One of them would be Judge Frederick Hubbard, of course, who was a familiar uh, personality on this show. And also uh, we have Fred D. Knapp, who uh, was the proprietor of what is still Knapp's Funeral Home on Greenwich Avenue. Of course, he died long ago, uh, but um, nevertheless, the the name remains. Um, and this is about how these two gentlemen became very popular, at least in town anyway, based on their bald heads being seen in the movies. <laughs> and it, we'll start with this. Recognized his dome um, is the first story. Saw Judge Hubbard in bald head movies at Cleveland. That would be Cleveland, Ohio, of course. Judge Frederick A. Hubbard, Greenwich representative in the legislature, sat with his hat off in the lobby of the Hubline in Hartford. I think that would be a, um, a hotel. Last Thursday evening, when a gentleman, evidently a traveling man, approached him and remarked with a smile, How do you do, Judge Hubbard? Very well, I thank you, replied the judge with a quizzical smile. 
of his own, but you have the advantage of me. I don't seem to recall your face. I saw you only last night, or uh, I only saw you night before last in Cleveland, Ohio, volunteered the stranger, his smile still broadening. I think you must be mistaken, said the judge. I haven't been in Ohio in over a year, and as a matter of fact, night before, I was right where I am now. I haven't the slightest doubt of it, and nevertheless I must insist that I saw you night before last in Cleveland. Perhaps I'd better explain, Stranger said. It was in a movie theater, and you were on the screen with a crowd of about a thousand other bald-headed gentlemen, evidently having a jolly time before the camera. I recognized your face and your head. The instant I saw you here and got your name from the clerk at the desk, the judge laughingly admitted the soft impeachment and expressed his gratification that the Bald Head Club of America is making friends and acquaintances clear across the continent. He had been coaxed by President Perkins and the half-dozen movie cameramen who had spotted his classic cranium to take a position in the front row of baldies when the club was immortalized um, in film in front of the headline a couple of weeks ago. When, by the way, this comes from the Greenwich News and Graphic on Friday, May 25th, 1923. But there's more. This concerns Fred Knapp, the undertaker, uh, uh, whose business is still on Greenwich Avenue uh, today in the 21st century. Recognized on screen, Washington, by former Greenwichite. And the story goes as follows. Undertaker Fred D. Knapp of Greenwich, who shares with that other Fred, Judge Hubbard, the distinction of being one of the Bald Head Club's best-known movie matinee idols, received last Monday the following letter from Ed Edward R. Green of Baltimore, Maryland, formerly of Greenwich, son of the white William S. Green, at one time warden of the borough of Greenwich. Quote, My dear brother, while in the city of Washington, D.C. last week, I had the pleasure of seeing a very attractive movie, and during the current events, had the pleasure of seeing you and our old friend Hubbard hobnobbing with celebrities such as King George, Congressman Joe Cannon, Prince of Wales, and other famous ones. I always knew that they spoiled a good actor when they made you an undertaker, but I want to congratulate you on excellent work and tell you that you gave me a great deal of pleasure to see my old friend on the screen. It was always a mystery to me who they would get to replace Wally Reed, but I am glad that they have at last found him. With, ver with best personal regards, I am tr yours very truly, E.R. Green. One of the four reels made at Hartford was shown in the Greenwich Theater Wednesday afternoon and evening. This happened to be the reel on which the star performers wore our own dignified and distinguished fellow citizens, Judge Hubbard and Undertaker Fred Knapp, whose classic countenances have now become familiar to movie fans all over the United States. Mr. Knapp in this reel is discovered in his official capacity as chairman of the Committee on Qualifications, solemnly measuring the bald head of a candidate, John Burr, the fatty Arbuckle of Winstead, with a surveyor's tape. 
Judge Hubbard is seen completing his toilet with a comb, laying out the parting line on the visible surface and adjusting out to the imaginary hairs as to with as fine precision and as good effect as he could have done it um, on the bottom of a sugar bowl while President Irville A. May stand sat his elbow supervising the operation. When the promoters of the coming street fair hospital benefit reached the stage where they are to auction off the autograph photographs of his favorite movie actors, they will be a lively competition in the bidding for the John Hancocks, quote-unquote, of Messrs. Knapp and Hubbard. And that, my friends, comes from the Greenwich News and Graphic, Friday, May 25th, 1923, a century ago. Well, there's nothing like having a loose lion at a public event in Greenwich, Connecticut, and there was one, in fact. This dates from June 5th, 1908. It was covered in the Greenwich News, um, and it goes as follows. Um, Nero, who had a record as a man-killer, that would be um, the lion that had gotten loose at the circus in downtown Greenwich at the time, tormented by his keeper until he was frantic with rage, rushed through the door of his cage left open by a careless attendant. Into the tent, hundreds of little children were in the near vicinity. And the story goes as follows. A real lion escaped from a cage in the side show tent at Washburn Circus, which exhibited in the lot opposite the high school Wednesday afternoon and was at liberty for about 10 minutes inside the tent. During that time, there was considerable excitement as hundreds of people ran for safe places, some climbing trees and telegraph poles, while others ran into the schoolhouse or scattered for their homes. Now, I want to stop here and mention that this would this would have been held. It says that the um, uh, the lot across from the um, uh, from the high school, the high school at the time wasn't the one that um, is on um, or what is now the town hall. But this would be the town hall annex, which is um, you know over next door to um, the central firehouse uh, and off of which is off of uh, of course um, you know. Uh, uh, Greenwich Avenue and um, and Art Street, um, and um, and so I'm assuming that the lot across the street would be where um, the uh, building that became the Putnam Trust, the Greenwich Federal Savings and Loan, it was originally the Masonic Temple, uh, so that had not been built yet. Anyway, back to the story. Nero the Lion, unconscious of what consternation he was causing, apparently considered himself a prisoner, just as much within the tent walls as in the cage, and apparently relieved by the absence of keepers and others, lay down in the middle of the tent for a nap. His capture was cleverly done by employees of the show, corralling him with lasso and a huge piece of canvas, while the cage wagon was taken from its wheels and placed onto the ground so the lion could be crowded into it. Meanwhile, a dozen men, among them officers Nedley, Tully, and Joyce, stood outside with pistols ready to take a flying shot at the animal if he should escape through the tent walls. This was made impossible by the showmen, who held the side walls down until the capture was effected. Nero has a show reputation of having killed three men, the the only though only seven years old. Last winter he was exhibited at in Huber's Museum in New York. 
He was the star attraction of the sideshow here, in which there were about 25 persons when he darted out of his cage. Hmm. That he escaped was the fault of a helper who was known as Dutchy, quote-unquote, and whose business it was to hold on to a rope which was tied to the cage door and pull it too quickly when the, when the lion made a dash for the trainer. The trainer, it is understood, was a new man at the business. He gave the crowd the impression that he was going into the cage with a pistol filled with blank cartridges and a holding stick with the other hand. He opened the cage door a foot or two and jabbed the stick at Nero and fired the revolver in his face. The news representative who was present at this performance noticed that the animal was being enraged and also that the trainer had to pull the door shut himself twice, looking as he did in the direction of the man who held the rope to the door, as much as to indicate that he was not performing his duty well. Hmm, I'll bet. It wasn't a minute afterwards when the lion dashed at the door and the trainer jumped to one side, attracting the attention of Dutchy, quote-unquote, so much that he let go his hold on the rope, the door then swinging open and the lion leaping to the ground in the midst of men, women, and children. The trainer himself was in the cage, and he closed the door and remained there. Hmm. Officers Nedley, Tully, and Joyce were standing close to the cage, and they immediately called up to the side wall of the tent, shouted to the people to get out, and pushed them out, then they themselves ran out and held the side walls down. Employees of the circus surrounded the tent and held down the walls, and the lion was lord of all he surveyed for the next ten minutes. Mr. Washburn told the officers that they would have to shoot the animal, but it is doubtful whether even the expert shooting of the local police could have resulted other than in enraging the lion more. The local police and the circus men certainly kept cool in the time of seeming danger, and the capture of the animal by them brought forth much praise and applause. In the main circus tent, there was much confusion, though an attempt was made to keep the fact of the lion's escape from the small crowd which had gathered. Had it happened at night, when there were 1,500 people on the benches, certainly many would have been hurt in the crush, I'll bet. And that, my friends, comes from the Greenwich News on June 5th, 1908, um, and that would have been at uh, Washburn's Circus, which was held in downtown Greenwich at that time. Well, my friends, it's time for Crimes and Misdemeanors. This is the portion of the show in which we pause to observe the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department. This story, it's a burglary, dates from the, let's see, February 25th, 1882, uh, and it was covered in the Observer. Let's see, where, I just had that, where did I put it? Um, oh, here it is, okay. Uh, and this takes place at the Kent House, which was a hotel that once existed here in town. 
When Mr. John Banks, who has charge of the Kent House, in the absence of the proprietors, went there on Tuesday morning, as usual, to see that things were all right, he found a large sack filled with goods in one of the rooms. He immediately went to the residence of Mr. H.K. White nearby, and procuring the services of his man, the two made a thorough examination of the house and discovered that some party or parties had entered by the front door through the aid of false keys, and then got into the different rooms in the same manner. On investigation, the sack was found to be wet, as though it had been carried outdoors and brought back again, leaving the supposition that there had been two or more sacks filled, but finding them too heavy to carry, had left this one. The Mrs. Kent were telegraphed for, and on their arrival, it was discovered that the thieves had succeeded in getting away with about $500 worth of goods consisting of pillows, pillowcases, blankets, bedding, clothing, etc. Sheriff Reynolds and another party remained in the Kent house for a short time, but saw nothing of the robbers, as the latter had doubtless heard of the discovery of the theft and best got away. Hmm, so there you go. That is again from The Observer, and this was published on Saturday, February 25th, 1882. On May 25th, 1923, the people of Greenwich, Connecticut, learned about a street fair that was going to be held in mid-June. I'd like to share the news of that, especially since the Greenwich Town Party this week um, will be having a parade down Greenwich Avenue. Um, and then, of course, the Greenwich Town Party um, itself coming up on Memorial Day weekend um, in 2023. This story dates from Friday, May 25th, 1923. Greenwich News and Graphic. And the story goes as follows. Street fair is growing, says the headline. We'll have novel features that will delight young and old. Will we like that? Okay. <laughs> a number of additional features have been announced this week for the gigantic street fair to be given for the benefit of the Greenwich Hospital, Emily Bruce Shelter, and East Porchester Day Nursery on June 13, 14, 15, and 16 at Putnam Manor. Mrs. H. Durant Cheever is chairman of the sketches, which will be in black and white and oil, and arranged by L. Blass, who will paint portraits in oil. Howard Chandler Christie will do sketches. Mr. Pizel will also paint in oils. Mr. Christie, who is a celebrated artist, is just completing a portrait of President Harding, which will replace that of the Kaiser, which graced the Leviathan. Hmm. A first and second prize of $50 and $25, respectively, is offered in competition for the best show window, which will advertise any of the several books at the fair. Clarence Rowe, the illustrator, J.H. Hunt, the architect and window dresser for Lord & Taylor's store, New York, will be the judges. There will also be a contest for the best poster for the event and prizes awarded. The judge will be John Held Jr., Henry Raleigh, George Wright, the latter being teacher of art in a New York school. The book booth will be a novel attraction. Books autographed 
by such well-known authors as Cosmo Hamilton, Ernest Thompson Seton, John Dewey, Will Cather, and others will be on sale. The Chinese booth in charge of Mrs. J.H. Hunt, known as Mahjong, will have real Chinamen who will give lessons and dispose of Chinese articles. Thursday, there will be a special day for the children. There will be all sorts of toys and other attractions to amuse the little folks. There will also be fortune-telling. Dancing will be held every afternoon and evening, the, the music being furnished by a Russian orchestra. The Society Circus Sons will be under the supervision of Miss Mary Lanyard. Local talent will perform. Mrs. Luke Vincent Lockwood is in charge of the antiques. The farm, of which Mrs. F.M. Livingston is arranging many novel features, will have donkeys, pigs, calves, dogs, and chickens for sale. A number of pretty and winsome cigarette girls, attired in black and white and wearing turbans, will sell cigarettes. Miss Barbara Hatch is chairman, and her assistants are Mrs. Dorothy Nichols, Lisbeth Miller, Mrs. Hoyt Perry, Mrs. Kenneth Preston, Mrs. Aquila Giles, Mrs. Eric Kilmer. The advisory committee consists of F. H. Nichols, F. St. George Smith, J. H. Hunt, and E. Payson Hatch. A nursery will be provided where babies may be taken care of and articles for babies will be sold. Mrs. E. C. Wills is chairman of the committee. Books will be sold containing autographs of some of the leading moving picture stars. The tea room will be in charge of Mrs. Nathaniel Webb. The chef at the Pickwick Arms will serve dinners to motor parties and others. Mrs. Albert Wigan is in charge of the making of fancy boxes, which will be sold. There will be numerous other attractions to be announced later. And again, that was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic, Friday, May 25th, 1923, for a street fair that was going to be a benefit for a number of organizations and good causes, as we so do quite often here in Greenwich, not just way back when, but even in the present day. Well, you know what? It's time for me to run. I, I know I hate to do it. I could probably talk to you all day about uh, the history of Greenwich, Connecticut, but <laughs> I, I seriously have some things I have to go and uh, take care of, and uh, you probably have the same too. Well, in that case, let me tell you that, as we like to say, time flies when we're having fun, and it has been a lot of fun having you today on the 23rd of May, 2023 episode of the Greenwich in Town for All Season Show podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Jeffrey Bingamid, and I am a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of Greenwich, Connecticut, a community long known as the gateway to New England. It stands today as one of America's most notable and attractive communities, a special place that we like to call home, and maybe you do too. Well, the Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast was made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum of the United States of America, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, Eastern Neurologic Services of New York, and listeners like you everywhere. You can t contact me anytime, by the way, by 
email, emailing me at GreenwichTownForAllSeasons at gmail.com. Learn more about the show and listen to past shows by going to GreenwichTownForAllSeasons.blogspot.com. Well, you know what? Our next show is coming up a week from today, and that would be Tuesday, the 30th of May, 2023. It's the day after Memorial Day. So I'm grateful to all of you for the interest and enthusiasm for celebrating and uh, and learning more about the history of this extraordinary place that we call home, Greenwich, Connecticut. I'll be back with you next week. You take good care. Bye-bye now. <laughs>